Hello and welcome to the Educated Art Review. I'm Madeline. I'm Anya. And today we have with us a guest speaker, Jose Campbell, who is going to be answering the question, what can we learn about American history in studying zombie films? Yeah, it is the primary uh, topic of my thesis. So yeah, as you said, I'm, I'm Jose Campbell. I'm finishing up my master's degree here at Sacramento State, and I plan to continue on. Not quite sure where yet, but we'll figure that out when we come to it. Very cool. So can you tell us a little bit about what your thesis or your question is all about? Like, can you tell us how you came to this realization that this was a question worth asking? Yeah. So with it, it didn't start with zombies. It started really kind of all over the place. When uh, I took a class at American River College where I got my associates and I was in Dr. Caton's Chicano history class. And it was when I realized that there was a passion inside me to see beyond the facade. And we were reading a poem by another professor there, Dr. Kathy Ariano. And the poem is called Gentrification is When. I don't remember the poem, but I remember the last two lines because I was so infuriated, so fired up. And the final lines were, you think this poem is a joke. I don't care what you think, but I have to. And it was about gentrification, nothing to do with zombies. But as, as I went along and read more things, you know, years down the road, I decided I'm going to grad school and I want to study these things. I love pop culture. I'm a big nerd at heart and, and I love all sorts of movies. But I was interested in looking at what what miscegenation on film looks like, you know, interracial couples and kind of the history of it. I quickly discovered that most of the time when it's an interracial couple, they're heterosexual. They are composed of a white, often Anglo-Saxon Protestant male and a uh, female of color of some sort. I was really fascinated that when miscegenation does happen, which is still rare, and when it's not just being played for a joke, that's the, the makeup. I was turned over to an article by a friend and it looked at a 2013 film called Warm Bodies. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> I have not Are heard you going to like completely destroy my view of that movie? No, I think it's it's a very cute movie for what it is. Oh yeah, it's totally cute and it's totally cheesy. Yeah, and it's, I still like, I can still watch a movie of a franchise that I love that is being like, maybe like it's breaking canon or mm -hmm. something and just enjoy those 90 minutes or an yeah. hour or whatever, right? But this movie I read is an allegory for, for racism. And I was like, what? So I go, I sit down, I watch it, find out it's a novel. I read the novel, and really it's a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah. And the the zombie teen, who I just saw him in. Uh, Nicholas the, Holt, I, and he menu. plays Renfield, which is Dracula's like little minion. Yes. Yeah. But he's a zombie, and he comes back to life. And so really it's a, it's a breakdown of the other, right? Each of the, the Romeo being the zombie boy and the Juliet being the pretty white girl, the surviving folks. The world's gone to hell in a handbasket. Zombie apocalypse succeeded, I guess. Yeah. And anyway, through the power of love, he turns back human. I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. Let me look more. And I kept looking on, still with the lens of miscegenation. Can you it. explain what miscegenation is, just yeah. in case anybody doesn't know what that means? Of course. Miscegenation, generally speaking, is interracial relationships. It's actually one of the longest standing racist laws that predate the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. There have been laws on the books against interracial marriage as far back, I want to say it was like 16... I don't remember the exact date. It, it's irrelevant, but it's been on forever, really. And they, they didn't get completely overturned until 1967 with uh, Loving v. Virginia. Yeah. So I was interested in all that. There's a decent documentary on it, on the Loving v. Virginia case. But what connected a lot of this to me, right, is that at the time, so we're talking 2018, 2019, same class. He gives an assignment. We had read a speech from an unnamed politician, no year, no demarcations to tell us where it came from. And it could have easily been a right-wing Trump supporting speech. 
you know, made by him or someone like him. Well, it was something from the 1930s. I don't remember the politician because once again, details like that is trivia, not important. And in that particular case, it was anti-Mexican rhetoric because in the 1930s, the Great Depression, they're taking our jobs. This rhetoric is old. It's not new. You know, during the Trump presidency and even still, unprecedented is the word that gets tossed around. And it's just so, for me as a historian, it's so annoying because I'm like, no, yeah. these tropes mm -hmm. have been around. He is just a, a symptom of this disease that has been infecting the country. And so I was kind of obsessed to see how long it had been going on. Right. And so to zombies, I was fascinated because they were shown to be as a cipher for people of color. Most zombie movies, and not me, like a lot of folks uh, that I know, really only knew zombies as far back as 1969 Romero. George Romero was Night of the Living Dead. And I quickly found out there was so much more history to it, right? And the zombie we know and love, some of us today, has only really the, the name in common with its origin. It connects to my thesis because I was just fascinated by how the zombie has changed and how it has remained this uniquely American, mutable, I don't want to say cipher, but symbol as a way for people to reflect on the American experience, on American capitalism, on American empire, and on race and labor. So you said that zombies can be coded for racism against people of color. Can we see misogyny or anything like that in any other creature, like vampires, witches, that type of thing? Yeah, really only everywhere. At first, when I wanted to do this thesis on on paper, zombies didn't really sound like it was going to be enough to write a whole thesis on. I was wrong. There's so much to unpack. I was initially trying to look at all sorts of monsters from horror films, including vampires, werewolf, you know, uh, Frankenstein type things. So, like, where do we start? Uh, vampires is an easy one, right? Yeah. Going was 1840 some odd with Stoker's Dracula first coming into film. Technically under Nosferatu in, yeah. in 22. Rip off Dracula. Yeah, super funny with that. They just yeah. they couldn't get the licensing. Yeah. And so they just called it something else. Often they cipher for homophobia, particularly in the 80s and the, the AIDS epidemic, when everybody else was denying the existence of AIDS. Thank you, Reagan administration. These films tackled those topics. Now, The Vampire has the advantage of a long literary history mm -hmm. that by the time it gets to film, people know what a vampire is. Yes. Almost every culture has some sort of similar essence-sucking being like that. The vampire definitely represents that loss of autonomy to, not to be terribly graphic, but even a emasculization of a vampire penetrating a man, oh, turning yeah. him into a vampire. But also for, you know, back to the, to the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s, the spread of disease mm -hmm. you know, being this blood-borne pathogen. That was terrifying. And even one step back, vampires are always foreign. They're almost always mm -hmm. foreign. And so there, there's another foreign influence, often because of the kind of a anti, I guess, just not Northwestern Europeans, right? The, yeah. the not white enough Europeans. They're on the, like, the Eastern European side of it, yeah. like Transylvania. That makes sense. But I know that we've talked about Nosferatu before, and especially not only with the vampire aspect, but the fact that he shows very anti-Semitic traits of being bald with the very long hook nose. And that's something can, that can be seen in witches too, right? Yeah, and witches I also found to consistently be a reaction to fear of women in power. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so We've uh, talked about a lot of that on the show. The, the witch, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with its connections to anti-Semitic tropes, mm -hmm. but I know they're there, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the very stereotypical things with the hook nose yeah. or the warts or what have you. And often also associated with women that broke or that transgressed other 
gender norm expectations. Yeah. They're single. They're they're not dependent on a man. They're self-sufficient. Often they're off in the woods doing their own thing. They don't need a man. And so they're scary for it. So I just want to loop it back to the zombies. Yeah. How has the zombie changed and developed over time from yeah, like our traditional understanding to like the walking dead that you would see? In a horror movie or like a horror show today. Take us through the history of zombies. There's there's so much. Well, I'm writing a whole thesis on it. Yeah. <laughs> there is uh, So there's a lot of uh, scholarly work on it already. Where I found that it was lacking is connecting it to events. A lot of it is very theory-based on psychoanalytic Freudian perspectives. Okay. Really big in his, was it 1918, The Uncanny? Okay. A lot of it gets into that with the zombies post-1950 forward. The original first few zombie films, there's not that many. And now there's a bazillion zombie movies, right? But at first, uh, the very first one, 1932, White Zombie, starring Bela Lugosi. Oh, my gosh. Dracula himself. And it's great. If you look at the marketing for it, most of it, even though the films are different companies, it was at a time before there was such exclusivity on things. But it was often marketed on the posters as Bela Dracula, in quotes, Lugosi. And because in 1932, most folks didn't really know what a zombie was. They hadn't heard of it. And that's one of the other things that makes zombies unique is that they do not have that literary history, that Frankenstein, Dracula, werewolves, etc. Undead have existed in most lores in some form or another. But the zombie is unique in that it's Haitian in origin with an amalgamation of influences from West Africa, Catholicism and then its own emergence in Haiti that was a way to cope with slavery and maybe less cope, but it was like an additional fear for the enslaved. A for zombie. to come back and still be enslaved? Yeah. Well, you know, how do you escape enslavement? You death. death. But as a zombie, even death could not liberate you wow. from that servitude. So that was one of the big fears. And William Seabrook Infamously, famously, he would go and do these big uh, anthropological studies. He claimed that he participated in cannibalism with tribes in Africa and all over Latin America. But he goes into Haiti, spends some amount of time there, and he publishes his travel log and he talks about the zombie. So that's really when zombie first comes from Haiti to the United States. And it was made possible because of American imperialism. The United States invaded Haiti in 1917 and stayed there until 1933-34. They were there for quite a while. And... In that time period, the United States did something that really hadn't been done. They forced change onto the Haitian constitution. The Haitian constitution had specifics on who could and who could not own property. You had to be Haitian. You had to be part of the, the, the country. It got changed to white people. It got changed to America. I don't remember if it was American specifically, but wh whatever the amendment was, it was because the United States had so much financial interest. Yeah. In yeah, we tend to do that. There, you know, they, they, it's a, it was a very fertile, fertile land for growing sugarcane in particular, which is a very brutal labor intensive crop to grow. So that's kind of where it emerges. White Zombie makes some allusions to Haiti. It is explicitly in Haiti. And you see, it's one of my favorite scenes where a zombie falls into the actual mill of the sugar cane. And the entire workforce there are zombies, except for Bella Lugosi's character, whose name, I don't know how to pronounce his last name because it was never pronounced on the film. Legrand? I don't know. It's very, some L-E-G-R-E-N-D. Yeah. Something like that. But his first name's Murder. Oh, uh, <laughs> that is a great name. <laughs> and he plays the, although they don't call it by this term in the film, he plays the Bokur, the, the dark uh, sorcerer that controls the undead. And he, he is the, the tempter to the other protagonists of the film. So a quick forward, right? in the 30s, they're about that exoticism in often Latin America or a nondescript tropical 
country or island. And in the 40s and 50s, the, the popularity really kind of quickly dies off. There was a war going on, so people were a little busy. And and then it doesn't really resurge until Romero. A few movies came out. There's some notable ones that don't do a ton to change in the genre. Notably, they quickly move away from its Haitian origins and from its voodoo origins. Um, instead of being a voodoo or superstition-based action, it becomes very scientific. It becomes a result of nuclear waste or, or experimentation by a mad scientist. That's where the zombies go for a minute because... After the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those are the concerns, the atomic age. Yeah. And then, so Romero, which was 1968, George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, which if you're a horror fan, it's like a quintessential movie that you watch. From my understanding is that it really did kind of transform the genre, not only for zombies, but it was the first time that a person of color or a man of color was the hero instead of the villain. And it was the black guy that saved everybody and got whoever would trust him out but the movie starts with them trying to shoot him because they think that he's a zombie simply because he's black yeah first first protagonist with a black actor and the role so there's a lot of debate within the the romero fans of Mm -hmm. the intentionality of romero behind his social critique yeah i i think he was just being coy but you know first time the the role itself of ben was not necessarily written for a black character he had in mind like a trucker Someone who they were in the middle of their route and and they got to the town and, you know, got, you know, uh, laywayed. But um, Dwayne Jones, the actor, didn't want anything changed from it. Didn't want it to get turned into a black role. Yeah. A role. And the reason he's dressed the way he's dressed, because he wanted to dress nice. At that time, very few black actors were making it into headlines in any kind of way. And even then, right, Night of the Living Dead wasn't like a summer blockbuster type thing. Ben wanted to be dressed nicely because at that point, his height of like Sidney Poitier's portrayals of, of black men and his were always really clean shaven. And because, you know, if, if you're a person of color, you have to work twice as hard to be accepted. So Night of the Living Dead, it, it definitely changed zombies forever, right? Because that's the version of the zombie that we know today. Funnily enough, not called zombies in the movie. The word I think is used by a, by a newscaster towards the end, but he just kind of referred to them as ghouls. Okay. And he took a lot of inspiration from the original movies, but also from the original version of I Am Legend. Yeah. yeah. The most notable thing, I think, well, one of the most notable things in terms of like the ethnography of the zombie is this is where they first become cannibalistic. Okay. okay. I was going to ask about when the idea of them being brain eaters came into question or if that has any sort so that of That is a very like vivid image that you get when you think of zombie. You think of The Walking Dead, them moving very slowly, hungry for brains, that type of thing. That, that center in our visual culture. When did they develop into that? The brains part of it, I I know it's never an explicit thing in the Romero verse, so I'd have to I'd have to take a look. I'm not entirely sure on the brains, but I know that it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily tie to any other like original zombie. Lore. Yeah, they become cannibalistic with his film because before that, the threat wasn't the zombies. And it, you look at pre-Romero films; most zombies can get you. You'll get turned into a zombie, okay. Okay. but it's really that fear of loss of autonomy. Because if you're a zombie, you're no longer in control of yourself. I'm still working on unpacking this in a historical context but the zombie before was kind of like a sympathetic monster like they were the they were dangerous it's like frankenstein like you feel bad for him yeah they they weren't the threat it was the threat of becoming one so the first two zombie movies white zombie and i walked with the zombie the threat is the same it's the protagonist white woman becoming 
a zombie. That's the threat. And zombies at that point are really just for mindless labor. They don't attack. They don't they don't do anything without being commanded. And so with Romero's, it's the first time that they become this mindless horde, you know, driven for appetite. And then he really capitalizes on it in his next film, Dawn of the Dead, when they're in the mall and like there's no subtlety there on the criticism of American capitalism, yeah. consumerism at the time. I was going to say, it sounds like a direct commentary on consumption. Like it's quite literally consumption. Would you would you say that? Or Absolutely. Like, okay. Do you think it gets kind of religious? Because I'm thinking like Catholic and I'm thinking seven deadly sins. So like gluttony, does it get into that type of symbolism? In some they do. And that's one of the things I really love about zombies is that there is no... If you, if you write a vampire story, mm-hmm. any deviation from Dracula, and you're going to get criticized, well, that's not really a vampire. Yeah, there's very specific traits they yeah. have to have. Think, yeah. Think Twilight, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those vampires, they glitter in the They're sunshine. sparkly. They're not real vampires, and there's that whole thing about it. And, and I'm a killer, Bella. Right? <laughs> and so, yeah, sure, they're still vampires, but zombies don't have that literary history. They don't have those strict rules. So in some zombie movies, yeah, it's more of a religious thing, and, and, and others not. I do find, though, that universally, most cultures have some sort of life after death, respect, knowledge, whatever, right? It changes from culture to culture. And zombies are really like one of the most sacrilegious of that, is that your soul may or may not be in there after death, but your body is not going to be held sacred. And in a lot of cultures, you can't deface your body before death. And so that is often one of the things that's the most revolting. And I don't know enough about uh, biology on it, but I think it's like an evolutionary thing that we, we are disgusted by death, by the things that remind us of it. And so the zombie is like the most in your face. Not only is death the threat, but then the thing that died is going to kill, kill you. You, yeah. So. Yeah. So a zombie is a sort of catch-all term for this flesh-eating, but it doesn't even have to be flesh-eating threat, like this undead threat. It's like this amalgam of characteristics that kind of got thrown together. Yeah. I mean, at, at least in American consciousness. And it developed as a reflection of racial tensions? It came about because of exposure, and I think really at the time in the 1930s, is because of the exoticism. So this is a pre-mass media. Newspaper would be really the most accessible thing out there. But people would read travel logs for fun. Like it was their way of exploring the exotic. And at the time, we're kind of like at a, at a peak of American expansion, where at this point, a lot of Latin America, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, Hawaii, all these places are under American control, but not a lot of Americans can afford to go and see it. That wasn't until the 50s where it was like with plane travel and yeah, stuff. And, yeah, and tourism wasn't really a thing the way it is today. And so any kind of wrapping of look at how exotic this is, you know, was really a, a good seller. And in 1932, White Zombie as a film was just on the heels of 1931's Dracula and Frankenstein. And so people were really, really hungry for horror. So this is where the, the historical contexts of it all come in. The Great Depression is in full swing. And so people are looking at this kind of as a form of catharsis. Why do we watch horror? You know, why do we paint horrific things. Why do we paint women beheading their their attackers? Because it makes us feel good that somebody's, uh, you know, getting some vengeance or justice or what have you. And it's like living vicariously through like fictional characters. I'm imagining like 1960s civil rights era, almost as a response. These people are no longer something to be exoticized or fetishized, but rather perceived as threats. You bring up a good point because I was, I was doing a little Wikipedia reading about where it's, especially George Romero's film being symbolic of the horror of the Vietnam War. And and the otherism of being there and then coming home and not feeling like you belong. Like, yeah. Dead inside? Yeah. Quite, like, <laughs> yeah. Quite literally, literally dead yeah. inside. 
Yeah. No, you definitely hit the nail on the head there. At that time, the, the filming of the Night of the Living Dead was definitely at the height of the civil rights era. And I think it was about two months before it released, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. And they actually really considered holding off on releasing it yeah. because they're like, well, our dude dies at the end. And that's one of the things, too, that really calls out the Vietnam War, primarily in the horrors of, of the body horror. Like, it's not a body horror movie, and this is gross, but worth knowing. The intestines they're eating on screen, they're real intestines. Like, Excuse me? Yeah, they're pig intestines. Oh, okay. oh I not people. Like, like, human, like, dude. actual cannibalistic practice. Okay. No, that'd be too... Don't <laughs> That. What's the method acting? That'd be too deep into method acting. No, but it was it was pig intestines, like raw pig intestines. You'd have to pay me like a lot of money for that. Because yeah. if that's in my contract, I'd be like, you have to like give me a steak dinner after that. No, those are the ones that were doing it for free. Oh my oh God. Yeah. There's a whole history too with the copyright issue there, which made some of the primary actors uh, financially suffer. But yeah, they were eating raw things and the visual of guts being pulled out of people and eaten. Very much reminiscent of the Vietnam War and the and the degree of violence, yeah. which was fairly unique to that. World War II also had a ton of body horror things. And in fact, W. Scott Poole writes in his book, The Wasteland, on how the Great War, World War I, changed horror forever. It, it really made, did, because, yeah. I mean, it not only changed horror, it changed art. It was cataclysmic in, like, every single aspect, because it was the first war, not only with the technology of mustard gas and stuff like that, you have these horrific injuries, and then you have development of monsters after that. When you watch something as simple as Downton Abbey, you can see it hit these major rich aristocratic classes just as much as it hit, you know, the men that were signing up for the war. Like it literally had an impact on every single person's life. It's fascinating because it's it's something that I definitely kind of like knew maybe logically in the back of my head, but I hadn't ever really thought about when you start breaking it down into those kinds of steps into how things like trench warfare changed what people dreamt. It changed how people were afraid to die. Um, Nosferatu very much comes out of that, that resentment after World War One and the perception of the Weimar Republic, the Germans, the reparations after war were super steep. They set up Germany to fail and they blamed the elite, the rich, and along with it, the Jewish people. And so that, that's where the anti-Semitism comes into in, in the in in Nosferatu specifically. Yeah. How does the zombie continue to develop after the 60s? In, in super fascinating ways because it gets more poignant with its critique of capitalism, but then it dies off in the late 80s, 90s until September 11th, 2001. For the United States, at least, and for your typical middle-class white American nuclear family, things are fine. America is the big dog on campus. No one can really mess with yeah. this. We're messing with the rest of the world left and right. But since the Civil War, no war had been fought on American soil, or at least continental American soil. The atrocities of war were some foreign countries' problems, not I ours. can't see it, not our problem. Right. And then we get attacked. 3,000 people die yeah. in one morning. Uh, and then how many thousands more since then? So that kind of put on full display the vulnerability, then the lack of safety that we really have and how much that facade is just there. And we realized, oh, wait, these protections are fake. We're not safe at all. The movie 28 Days Later with yes. David Boyle. That's where you now have more people, right? There's that big argument versus zombies and non-zombies. 
the zombies that you think about, they're like, oh, okay, it has to be slow walking. But they run. They run, yeah. If it's 20, that, they're terrifying. <laughs> 28 Days Later zombies, yeah, I'm not um, I'm uh, not surviving. We're all going to die. Yeah, we're all going to die. But that movie starts off with these chimps being experimented on by being shown footage of terrorist Middle East violence. And so they're induced with this rage virus sort of thing. And that's where the infection came from and spreads. But it's also very poignant to the fears of post 9-11 not only America, but the world, because that's a British film, but they were, they're our allies, so they're equally as scared from these big post-apocalyptic possibility. It moves from sci-fi of like, well, yeah, maybe the world could end and zombies have something to do with it, where now it's like, oh, we're, we're really afraid this could happen. And our, our Western dominance isn't going to protect us from it. In fact, it might be the cause of it. Yeah. But along with zombies, witches, vampires, once again, zombies get die out. We see this a lot with a lot of film trends. There'll be a big one, a couple maybe decent okay sequels, and then yeah. it just it starts it dying It just dies, off. yeah. The zombie has seen a couple of, like World War Z kind of brought it back a little bit. Yeah, that was a good one. I, I kind of quite enjoyed that one. Super far away from the book. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> but the book it's is... It's Brad Pitt. Like It's Brad Pitt, so I'm not mad. You know, I could stare at him for hours. That's fine. But the, the book as a historian, as a people who would appreciate that, is told from like a variety of perspectives from people that are surviving or living through that. I think a miniseries would do that really well. In more recent times, The Last of Us, I have found really interesting because they've kind of connected it to nature in a way. Like the zombification comes from the growth of mushrooms, which, I mean, I just started watching this documentary on Netflix about mushrooms and like the power of mushrooms. And I mean, there's mushrooms that are growing on like the Chernobyl sites right now. It's literally nature's trying to clean mistakes of the humans. Like it's interesting. Have you all watched like all of the? Last I haven't of Us? watched all of it, no. but I, I I know the lore and the myths and stuff like that, and the practical effects on that show is just incredible. Which is one of the things, right, on the on the artistic side of things, which I'm not as well versed on, but I do really like that in the show. That's what they went for. They did actual practical effects where the actors are sitting there for hours and hours getting all these things put on for. But it's know, worth it because absolutely. you get the you get these incredible effects. But just the visual representations of these different zombies, they look so different from you know going from Romero to something like Twenty Eight Days Later, and then you start moving into you know in the last year or so, you get to an even different incarnation of what they are. And a general trend. It's not super big yet, but I keep seeing zombies regaining consciousness, regaining, okay. regaining autonomy. We see that a little bit in some of the 90s Romero films and as we discussed earlier in Warm Bodies. It hasn't hit to the point where like they like reintegrate into society, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's where we end up seeing some of the. Yeah, but they like start to have some type of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what? There was that one uh, TV show. I didn't watch it be on the first season, iZombie. Oh, okay. So I really enjoyed that show and I thought it was hysterical because it was basically a coroner and, you know, where are you going to work when you're a zombie? You need access to brains. <laughs> so what she would do is she would take the brains, cook them and put it in her ramen and would dump Tabasco on it because she has no taste. So like all she could taste was spicy. So she used to just have bottles and bottles and bottles of Tabasco and just put that on everything. But she became a zombie because some really deadly energy drink, some like rat thing got in it, mutated. And then there's like zombie factions. So like 
more than her got infected. But like then it became like a whole political thing. I noticed there still a continuing trend that the zombification becomes possible because of capitalism, because of the global reach of American products. Assuming that the energy drink was an American product. Oh yeah, she was like on a yacht in like Miami, and they, it was like a launch party or something, and then like they all ended up zombies the next day. And in The Last of Us, it's uh, a similar origin. It becomes possible because at least in the film version of it. So in the video game, I watched each episode as they came out mm-hmm. because I love the video game. The first one came out in 2013. It has that same tie to capitalism because the fungus, the the cordyceps in the in the movie and in the game, they mutate to be able to infect humans. Now, cordyceps are real. They infect primarily ants and I think some species of beetles, but they literally like slowly kill the host and then release spores and, and, and yeah. others. But one of the things that they were able to do by changing the medium, because what's great when you're comparing the two, the video game versus the, the show is that they had to take into perspective how their audience was going to watch it. Mm-hmm. In the video game, as a developer, you have complete control over what you put in, but you have no control over how the player is going to interact mm-hmm. with it. You know, you have some players who never look up, and so putting an Easter egg up anywhere would, would be useless. But in a show, you have, as the director, you have complete control over what your audience sees and when they see it. And so they were able to add in some background narratives that do a couple of things when we're talking about representation and race. They put the origin of the mutation of the cordyceps in Indonesia, in a, in a flower factory. And what's really funny, it's super subtle in the first couple episodes. So I guess spoilers for, for folks. But in the first couple episodes, you see Joel and his daughter and, and his brother not eat anything with gluten. You'd be safe. Yeah. Nothing with I'm gluten. I'm also dairy-free, so I wonder if that saves me from, like, other things. It might. A future Last of Us series. Yeah. I went with dairy intolerance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm safe. And it's super subtle because it was his birthday. They're supposed to make him waffles for breakfast. Mm-hmm. They didn't have enough flour, so they didn't make it. The neighbors, they were making biscuits. The The daughter's going to eat one, but something happens and she doesn't eat it. And it doesn't. that doesn't become obvious until several episodes later, but that's how it went from a factory in Indonesia, which is actually one of the biggest producers of flour in the world. And so from there, the cordyceps went all over the world because they shipped everywhere. everywhere. And so like the vast majority of humans eat gluten in some form or another. Interesting. And so that fungus spread in that way and, and they were able to survive it. But in the game, you don't get that backstory. It's very much just focused on the survival of Joel and, and Ellie. But one of the things I say about horror and zombies in specific is that yes, they, they represent the dark, you know, the dark reflections of society, the way that we think we look in the worst parts, but they also are a very strong vehicle for criticizing and, and changing. In a recent episode, you all were discussing how do we change the male gaze? I think the same thing can be said for media that is centered for white Anglo-Saxon straight Protestant yeah. viewers. And similar answer, I don't know, but I think there are people who are making ways, right? So first step, acknowledging it which is such a difficult first step for so many people. We're trying to get there, yeah. <laughs> that, that's really what my thesis is. Is like, hey, take a look. This is what it's done. This is what this is what watching these yeah. movies show you. Kind of like a new subgenre has emerged okay. called racial horror. Oh, yeah, like with Jordan Peele. Okay, so if you have not seen a Jordan Peele movie, you mm. need to get on that. My personal favorite is Us, just because of the amount of influences that come into it and the twist. I think that really started with Get Out. It, it started with Get Out. He continued it on with Us and then Nope. And my favorite thing, in, well, so I'm, I've been a Jordan Peele fan for a long time. Yeah. And, and going back and rewatching some of his skits from Key and Peele, yeah. there's this one that just cracks me up. And unfortunately, it stars also, I forget the actor's name because I don't like him, but he played Hercules in the in the 90s in that TV oh, show. Oh, I hate him. He's like super far-right Republican. Kevin something. Yeah, Kevin, yeah. Kevin, it doesn't matter. 
oh my god, I'm get, I'm gonna remember the name like right after you leave. <laughs> no, but he's in the skit, and it's a zombie apocalypse. They're in the neighborhood, and he's like playing that the, the super heroic white savior dude, and he gets eaten by a zombie. <laughs> And and it's and it's great. Key and Peel are surviving. They're going along, and then they realize what the zombies aren't approaching us. And they get close to zombies. The zombies are in the car. They roll up. The zombie rolls up the window, and like there's like a three zombies walking, like father, daughter, and child, and they pull the child away from the black people. And he's like, these are some racist zombies. And so that's you know that's the whole joke. And in, the, in one of the in one of the homes, there's just a bunch of black folk having having a barbecue. So like, yeah, these racist zombies are leaving us alone. And I think it's really interesting, like you were saying, that there's this consciousness in horror. Like I was watching that show Superstore or something. There's a black man in a wheelchair and there was kind of like this horror themed episode. And he's like, oh, I'm not going first because the black person always dies first. There's kind of like this global horror consciousness now of these kind of stereotypes and tropes, which I find really interesting. In general, yeah, horror is is fascinating. One of the arguments that I make is that history is horror. Because is. from my perspective, American history and our involvement in Latin America, the things that have happened can be best understood through the tropes of horror. At least that's what I argue. Thinking forward, I think your theory makes looking at history more digestible, kind of cope with horror movies as like a catharsis experience. I think it's more easily digestible for people, especially white people, to understand racism. I wholeheartedly agree. One of the things when I was first starting the research at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, the movie, a 2012 movie, Contagion. Oh my God, everybody Steven, rhymes with by that Steven movie. Soderbergh. Yeah. yeah. It, it was following regular trends that a 10-year-old movie would have been at at that time. But then it exploded like 9,400% between end of November and January in people watching it. And so then I was like, why are people watching what's happening outside? Yeah, I tried to get away from that. Like, yeah, as quick, like, I watched Tiger King. <laughs> yeah, I watched Tiger King. That's just a train wreck you can't not look at. But, yeah. but it's that, that driving need for catharsis. Yeah. Was, was like the term that you were looking for, like media literacy or like yeah. it helps you to, Yeah. I think what your thesis is doing is it's going to help people recognize these sorts of trends like that are happening contemporary to our times, or at least to look back and realize, oh, this type of film or this type of production was clearly a product of XYZ impactful moment, which is really important to helping us understand the present and what's going on now. To be able to recognize, like Anya was making me watch Midsummer last night, the overtly white supremacist tones that were yeah. happening throughout the film. Yeah, I think it's encouraging more in-depth critical conversations about life in general, which is what visual culture does. But a lot of times you're basically pointing out things that people haven't thought about before, which is that's important. I agree. And I think that your your analysis of it being more digestible makes it makes it so that people can face these realities and recognize that it's one, it's not about them individually. It's, you know, we didn't enslave anybody, sure. But as a way to kind of cope with it and, and particularly the things that are being created by people of color to reflect on it, right? So many of the movies that come out get accused of just of the wokeness. And mm -hmm. it's like, well, it's sure, yeah, it's it's woke, I guess, but it's like this is the reality that we live. I really hate the word woke because if you ask somebody what the word woke means, they can't give you a straight answer. It literally, it's not even like an academic definition. It, does woke mean like the history we're currently living in and looking back at accurate history? Okay, then somebody's woke. It's funny because the term being used in the general sense dates back to like the 40s. Yeah. So it's been around forever. Uh, actually, another example of cultural appropriation. It was very much a term prominent in black communities and now it's, you know, everywhere. 
But I think the, the last thing with it, right, yes, is pointing out, showing that these things, that are trends that we see today are real, that they have a history, and to understand how the manipulation of what we see affects, you know, how we act. So when we normalize killing a bazillion zombies because there are these mindless, faceless threats, it makes it easier to go, well, yeah, our, you know, we're fighting for freedom in another country with people that we don't see or need to see. And so it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Yeah. With values that don't directly align to our own, so they may as well be brain dead. Yeah, that being literally dehumanizing. Yeah, well... Thank you for telling us about your thesis. Thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast, Jose. We got into like a really interesting conversation about zombies. We really appreciate your expertise. If you want to follow the Educated Art Review, check out our Instagram or our TikTok at The Ear Podcast. Thank you so much to Philip Allstadt for allowing us to record in his space. And be sure to check out his podcast, Beyond J. I'm Madeline. I'm Anya. Keep an ear out for the ear.